Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. As we continue our series of sermons through this book, we are now in chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 8 of Ecclesiastes 5, and I'm going to continue on through chapter 6, verse 12. I'm sorry, verse, chapter 6, verse 9. Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 6, 9. Please give your full attention to the Word of God. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun, riches that were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness, and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, it is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Well, our long national nightmare is over. The Major League Baseball lockout has been ended. 
after months and months every day hoping that it would come to end and spring training would start, it has finally come to a conclusion. But it was also frustrating to follow the stories, wasn't it? It was frustrating that the owners and the players could not only come together and agree on the rules of the game, but they couldn't agree on how to distribute the billions of dollars of revenue that they take in every year. It was hard to pick a side. I'm, I was, as a baseball fan, people know I'm a fan. They say, well, whose side are you on? You on the side of the owners or you on the side of the players? I'm like, neither. Fed up with both of them. It's hard to be sympathetic to the owners, I think, especially, but I mean, the average Major League Baseball player makes $4 million a year. And the good ones, the best ones, make over $40 million a year. And so it's hard to be sympathetic. But the owners, the value of an owner's team increases $175 million every year on average. The problem is greed. Not once in all other deliberations did I hear any mention of the possibility of lowering the price of my ticket to watch a game. And I have to watch the Pirates lose 100 games a year. And I get no discount, no bargain. That's the way of life. That's the reality under the sun. The book of Ecclesiastes that we've been studying is all about this hypothetical professor who's looking for meaning in life, looking for purpose in life under the sun. He's put that limitation on his worldview that he can only find meaning and purpose in the material world under the sun. And here in this end of chapter 5, beginning of chapter 6, he tries to go for one of the most enticing types of pursuit that you can have under the sun, which is the pursuit of wealth, the $40 million a year to find meaning and purpose. I want to stop for just a second. I want to go back and review one thing in particular because we're about halfway through the book now, but I do think that this is something that gets lost. You, you don't interpret the book of Ecclesiastes the same way you interpret most of the rest of Scripture. It's a very different, very unique, and, and very profound type of writing. Only in the beginning. It is written, let me assure you, uh, I think there's been some confusion on this, we believe that it was written by a believer, a true believer in Jesus, a true believer in the old covenant, uh, coming Christ, a true believer in Yahweh, a member of the covenant community. He's writing as a believer. It may have been Solomon. We're just not sure. But it was written by a believer. But except at the very beginning and except at the very end, he's writing in the, in the bulk of the book, in the middle of the book, he's writing from the perspective of a hypothetical preacher or professor, as I call him. It's the, the, the name he gives to this hypothetical fictional character is the one who gathers, is what it literally means. And so you, sometimes it's translated preacher, teacher. I pick professor because we're talking to a university community. He seems like, he sounds like a philosophy professor. But this is something that the believing author of the book is writing. He's writing in a, in a different voice, in the voice of this hypothetical professor. If that's hard to understand, the best way I've illustrated it, back at the beginning of the series, I compared it to 
uh, C.S. Lewis' book, Screwtape Letters. He writes in Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis, a believer in Jesus Christ, writes in the voice of a demon so that we can understand the worldview of the demons and so that to help us as Christians to understand what the strategies and purposes and everything of a demon are. And so in the same way, the believing author of Ecclesiastes is writing mostly here in the voice of this professor to show us what it's like to live within that worldview, which is limited to only the material, physical world that we know, can know under the sun. Again, he'll talk about God. God exists, but God is distant. There's no revelation. God is not involved in the world. He's not, he's, he's not, he's not uh, spoken into the world. There's no truth from above the sun. You can only know what you can know from the physical world. I just want to remind you of that because it's important to understand that he says a lot of things that are true within that worldview, but wrong in the bigger worldview when you include revelation from God. So let's look at chapters five and six here. He's dealing with what he calls the love of money. This is his most recent pursuit. And boy, you know, talk about relevant. That's been, I know I've talked to a lot of you as we've been going through these sermons, how incredibly relevant this book is. It's written 3,000 years ago, probably. And yet it is so relevant because the professor is looking for meaning and purpose in all the wrong places that the people around us are looking for meaning and purpose. And I don't think there's a greater enticement, like I said, than money itself. Because by money, you can, if you had enough money, as, uh, as one of the contractors I know says, you can have anything done to your house as long as you have enough money. You know, money can buy anything, it seems, in this worldview. But can it buy meaning and purpose? John Stott once wrote that our blindness to the sin of materialism is similar to our culture's blindness in the 1800s to the sin of slavery. I thought that was an interesting comment. That as we look back 150 years to how our culture viewed slavery, and we think, how could they have been so blind to something that was so wrong and evil? And yet, I can imagine 150 years in the future, somebody will look back into our era and say, how could you be so blind to the sin of materialism that has corrupted your own worldview? Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. And in that book, he talks about the different idols that we worship in life. And he said this in that book, he said, as a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin, almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and the people around me. And then he concludes with this statement, greed hides itself from the victim. That's why Jesus, in addressing greed, and boy, you know, he talked about greed and the love of money a lot, didn't he? This is why he had to say to us that we must be on guard. We must be on guard. He says, take care, Luke 12, 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see, it's a problem of the heart. That's why in Keller's book, he addresses it as an idol issue. It's something that we worship. A love of money is the worship of money. It's looking to money 
to give you meaning and purpose and joy and satisfaction in this life. But what is really good about that book, Counterfeit Gods, is that he digs below the surface because obviously it's not money itself. It's the love of money. It's a heart issue. Twice Paul calls greed idolatry in his writings in the New Testament. And Keller, when he talks about the idols, he says, the idols are the things in our life that we love and we trust and we serve. The things we love and we trust and we serve. But what he does is he distinguishes between what he calls the surface idols and then the deep idols. The surface idols are things like money or your job or your kids or your, you know, your, your, your company, whatever. You can have idols. Those are the surface idols, but those are just means by which you serve the heart idols, the deep idols. And he says that those things are our desire for control, our desire for security, our desire for acceptance and honor from others, our desire for physical comfort. These things become idols, and we look to money to be the means by which we serve those idols, the deep idols. And so that's what the author of Ecclesiastes, through the voice of the professor, is asking us to consider if you can only know what you can observe under the sun and you have no revelation from God and God is distant, where can you find money and purpose? Well, could you find it in wealth? The world certainly seems to think so. The professor gives us three warnings. First of all, money cannot satisfy you. Money cannot satisfy you. It's interesting, he begins in that first paragraph with a cynical statement about bureaucracy. Did you catch that? In verses 8 and 9, levels, whether you're talking about politics or corporate politics or, you know, whatever bureaucracy you have to deal with in life, that he's, he's dealing with the fact that there is poverty. That in a world with, where there's enough wealth in the world to take care of everybody's needs, but yet there is abject poverty everywhere you look, it's because of the greed that infects the whole system, the bureaucracy. He says, do not be amazed when you have officials over officials over officials that in that whole structure with all the greed that permeates the, the hearts of all human beings is that in that structure, the poor are going to be oppressed and the rich are going to get richer. The ones with power and authority are going to get richer. That's the way it works under the sun. That's why you cannot look to the government to fix poverty. Remember back in the 60s, they had the war on poverty. How's that going? Governments can't fix poverty. Corporations can't fix poverty. Because it goes back to the issue of the heart, the greed in the human heart. Jesus said, you will always have the poor with you because he knew what the nature of fallen man is like under the sun. You will always have the poor with you. It's because of our depravity. I want to mention verse 9 quickly. Verse 9, if you notice in the ESV, it has a, a footnote 
there, and it says at the bottom that the meaning of the Hebrew verse is uncertain. Well, that's understating it greatly. I read a lot of scholars on that verse. Nobody's really quite sure how to translate that into English. It's just the Hebrew is very difficult there. It's interesting the ESV takes it in kind of a positive way. The way that the ESV translates it when it says, this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. You get the idea that the king is able to overcome the corruption in the bureaucracy of government to make sure that the, you know, that the, the, the produce of the fields are distributed well. That's not, I don't think, what it's saying in context. I think that's actually not a good translation. It's, elsewhere, it's been translated this way, and I think this fits the context better. It says, the profit of the land is taken by all, by all these higher officials in the bureaucracy. The profit of the land is taken by all. Even the king benefits from the field. So he actually makes the problem worse, not better. And isn't that what Samuel said to the Israelites when they asked for a king? He said to them, if, you, if, if, if God gives you a king, he's going to take your sons to be his servants and to be soldiers. He's going to take your daughters to be maids and cooks. He's going to take the best of your harvest and he's going to take the best of your livestock. And he's going to turn you into his slaves and you're going to cry out to the Lord to deliver you from your king. That's what he promised. And if you've studied history at all, you know that his promise has been fulfilled consistently throughout history. So you've got the problem of poverty, the unequal distribution of wealth. Every government recognizes it, but no government has the answer because no government can change a human heart. Under the sun... Greed is the problem. Greed drives our culture. Greed drives Major League Baseball. Greed drives the National Football League. Greed, greed drives every corporation. Drives the entertainment industry. It drives your family and, and even your church at times. Greed is a problem of the human heart. But money will never satisfy a human heart because a human heart is not an animal heart. A human heart is wired for eternity. It says in chapter 3 verse 11, God has put eternity into man's heart. Unlike the other creatures that God made, we cannot be satisfied by material things. And so he says, he who loves, verse 10 of chapter 5, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. I mean, for that reason, because money can't satisfy, money is addictive in the same way that drugs and alcohol are addictive. Because there's a rush that you get when you gain possession of something. When money provides something that your deep idols want, that that acceptance, that comfort, that, that security, whatever it is your deep idols are, are craving, when money provides it for you, you get a rush. It feels really good. You remember when you got your first iPhone or your first, you know, uh, smartphone of some type? You know, you're so excited and you're so obsessed with it and you feel so good. You can't wait to get up and play with it some more. You get a new car, you get a new house. Something new is great for a week or months, but it wears off. And when it's not new anymore, you start thinking about, well, maybe I need a better iPhone. Maybe I need a bigger house. Maybe my car is not as nice as it used to be. I need a new car. It's addictive. It cannot satisfy you. And so it says in chapter 6, verses 7 to 9, all the toil of a man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. 
We work so that we can eat, and then we eat so that we can be strong to work, and then we work so that we can eat, so that we can work, so that we can eat, so that we... That's what he's saying. That's life under the sun. Satisfaction for a moment, but long-term, it's meaningless. It's empty. It's vanity. It's chasing the wind. Secondly, the professor warns us that money complicates our lives. Look at verse 11 of chapter 5. It says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? He looks at all this wealth he's accumulating. He looks at his bank account. He looks at his, his storehouses full of the harvest. He sees all his wealth, but he also sees the hordes coming to him to leech off of him of his wealth. The more he owns, the more demands upon his money he has. It not that true? The more you own, the more you have to take care of. The more you own, the more you're tempted to worry about maintaining it or losing it. And the more you own, the more you lose that simple life that the professor has been telling us over and over. The only good you can hope for under the sun without revelation from God is a simple life of eating and drinking a good meal and enjoying the fruit of your labor and getting a good night's sleep. That's the best you can enjoy under the sun without revelation. But if you own a bunch of stuff, it's really hard to live that simple life. Get another car, you get a boat, get a four-wheeler, a swimming pool, a vacation house. All this stuff that Dave Borch was talking about, it starts to choke out any joy and contentment in your life. Just for entertainment, just for kicks, one of the pages on my Facebook feed that, that I follow is called Zillow Gone Wild. You know Zillow, the real estate site? Well, Zillow Gone Wild is just pictures of all these wildly audacious, extravagant mansions around the world. I don't know why, I, but I really enjoy looking through it just to say, I can't believe these, not just mansions, but estates that people live on. It's, it's a whole different planet from the life that, that I live in. But, you know, I, I look at it and I'm, I'm stunned by it, but I partly do it for spiritual reasons to say, I don't want that. I don't want to manage that estate. I've got a full-time job. I don't want to manage that estate. I don't want that to worry about when I go to sleep at night. I mean, what do you do with 14 bathrooms? I mean, one bathroom's enough of a problem to deal with. <laughs> it says in verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Why can't the rich man sleep? Possibly because he mentions eating in the context. Maybe just had all this rich food that has left him with indigestion. Maybe that's why he can't sleep. But I think it probably goes deeper than that. He can't sleep because he has to worry about his estate. He has to worry about paying the bills and about managing his servants and Somebody stealing what he has, he's got a lot to worry about. As riches increase, so do the demands. Or as one wise man has said, and we've repeated very often, your expenses will always rise to meet your income. Is that not true of your life, that your expenses always rise to meet your income? Why is that? It's because of greed. It goes to the heart issue. 
Early in our marriage, I've said this before, but early in our marriage when I was in seminary and my wife was working fast food and I was working part-time, we were poor by American standards, not by world standards. By world standards, we're all rich. But by, by American standards, we were poor because we were counting pennies to buy loaves of bread. And, you know, a lot of you went through that stage in your marriage and that stage in your life. You know, it's funny. When I talk about that part of our marriage and our life now, I look back on it fondly. Life was simple. It was really simple. Life was good, and we were so thankful for what little we had. That's really what the professor's trying to say, is that's the best you can hope for if under the sun is all you can know, is have a good meal, enjoy the fruit of your labor, and get a good night's sleep. And be content in that, be joyful in that. We'll talk about that in a minute. But in verse 17, you have a description of the man who lives for his wealth, the man who loves money. It says there in chapter 5, verse 17, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, in sickness, and anger. Why? He's filthy rich. Why? Is he living in so much darkness and inner turmoil and anger? You know, we joke about the one thing we hope for in life is to win the lottery. Haven't you ever joked about that? It's like, man, if I could win, if I won the lottery, if I had millions of dollars and could spend it, boy, just, you know, think of the things I could do. Did you ever read case studies of people who win the lottery? Did you ever read about their lives after they win the lottery? There's a lot of studies out there. Just, you know, Google that sometime, lottery winners, and read some of the very, very sad stories. One New York Times article said this about lottery winners. It says, a growing body of evidence suggests that winning big in a lottery often brings big, if not ruinous, trouble. And then there was a study in 1978 where they determined that those who had been paralyzed in tragic accidents actually rated higher in happiness and enjoying life than those who had won the lottery. And the stories bear that out. So money can't satisfy us, and money complicates our lives and takes away the simple pleasures. The third warning he gives is that all money is going to go away in the end. Any benefit that money gives you is extremely temporary, especially in light of the fact that you're going to exist for eternity. In chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, the professor gives an example of a man who lived a tragic life. He was rich, he was wealthy, he was honored, it says, but he kept his wealth. And I think you could read that, he hoarded his wealth. And he goes on to say, he kept his wealth to his hurt, to his detriment, for all the reasons we just talked about. Holding on to his wealth and, and, and finding his meaning and purpose in his wealth led to hurt, led to darkness, led to vexation, led to sickness and anger, as he's already said. And then he lost all of it. He lived for his wealth, and then he lost all of it. It says in a bad venture. We don't know if that's because of some sinful choice on his part or a foolish mistake or just some tra sudden tragedy outside of his control. But he lost all of it. And the point is, money, whatever benefit it gives you, whatever joy it gives you, is temporary, and it can be gone in a moment. Derek Kidner, the commentator, said, speaking of this man that the professor is talking about, he said, the wealth spoiled his life twice over, first in the getting and then in the losing. 
You know, I, I often look at, you know, I don't, I'm, I don't know, I don't know much about economics, and certainly don't know much about global economics, but I don't know about you, but it sure feels like the whole economic system of our country and the, and the global economy sure feels like a house of cards, doesn't it? Doesn't it just feel like one thing could just go wrong and it could all go away? So many people would be destroyed if that happened. You have images of the Great Depression in the 1920s, the stock market crash, stock people jumping off of buildings in New York City because they had lived for their wealth, they loved their money. Jesus gave a similar illustration over, and it's very familiar, over in Luke chapter 12, beginning verse 16, he says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this, I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. You notice what he's doing, he's looked to wealth to find meaning and purpose, but to feed that deeper idol, that deep idol, which is the need for security, because he places security in his wealth, he says, now I'm going to eat and drink, now I'm going to live those simple pleasures of life, I'm going to enjoy life. But the next verse says, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, is not rich toward God. Very much the same message of what the professor is saying in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 5, where he says, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Again, the ominous specter of death makes everything under the sun ultimately meaningless, especially money and we're all going to die. Chapter 6, verses 3 to 6, he talks about, what if a man could live 2,000 years? 1,000 years twice over, 2,000 years. I think he's purposely thinking maybe of Methuselah, because Methuselah lived 969 years. What if you lived twice as long as Methuselah? And what if you had 100 children? And he says, you lack nothing that you desire. This man lacks nothing that he desires. Those, by the way, the three things that the Old Testament talks about is, the, is uh, signs of a blessed life by the Lord in, in the Old Covenant community. A long life, lots of children, and wealth. These are things that were to be seen as blessings from the Lord. Well, what if somebody tries to find their meaning and purpose in those three things, and they have an excessive amount of these things? They live 2,000 years, they have 100 kids, and they have all the wealth they could possibly ever want. He says, but... If his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Wow. Here's the definition of what so many people in this world want. Is all of a multitude of everything that he could possibly want, and yet, if he's not satisfied with them, it's better if he had been stillborn as a child and never had to come and live under the sun. We can see, as, as we look at these warnings from the professor, that wealth cannot satisfy, it complicates our lives, and it goes away in the end. This is why when Jesus talked to us about money, and he did it a lot, it's why Jesus, every time he brought up the subject, he says, give it away. 
give it away. Because it can't satisfy, because it complicates life, and because it's going to go away at death. So how should we view wealth? Well, you do have, there in verses 18 through 20, we have again what I'm calling the carpe diem passages, where he says, enjoy your good food, enjoy your drink, and enjoy a good day's work, and enjoy a good night's sleep. Enjoy the simple pleasures of life, because that's the best it gets under the sun. But then his conclusion is over there in chapter 6, verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wonder of the appetite, saying the same thing in different words. It's better to see and enjoy what you have than to be always looking over the fence into your neighbor's yard to see what he has, to fall prey to that sin of greed and covetousness. Or another way of putting it is a better to have a bird in hand than two in the bush. Enjoy what God has given you, whatever your lot is in life, and don't be greedy is really what he's saying. Enjoy the simple life. He says you'll be so occupied with the joy in your heart that you're not going to be troubled by the questions that are troubling the professor. He's basically saying he keeps looking, he understands that Food and drink and a, and a good day's work and a good night's sleep, that's not enough to bring meaning and purpose in life. But if you can be content in that under the sun and enjoy those simple pleasures, you'll be so preoccupied with the joy of the simple pleasures that you won't be troubled by these terrible philosophical questions that are driving the professor nuts. But what if we're all going to die? What does this all mean if we're gonna, all going to die? How do we find lasting contentment and joy in his life? Well, here's the point in the sermon every week where we say, okay, Ecclesiastes has done a good job, the professor has done a good job of describing what life under the sun is. What if we take into account what God has revealed in his word as though it's true? That the Son of God came and dwelt among us. God with us. God became imminent. God became part of his creation. He added to his divine nature a human nature. He lived in our midst. And having lived a perfect life, never having sinned in thought, word, and deed, then he allowed himself to be offered up as a sacrifice as he hung on the cross, as the wrath of God was poured out upon him, the wrath of God that your sins deserved, that my sins deserved, poured out upon him. And he paid in full the total price, the penalty of our sins. And he died for us. He shed his blood to cleanse us of our sin. And then he was raised from the dead. A God so intimately involved in his creation, who was above the sun, who left his throne in heaven, dwelt in our midst, lowered himself to the point of death on a cross so that we might be saved. What if that is true? And therefore, because faith in him gives us victory over death through his victory over death at the cross in the empty tomb, therefore, death does not bring everything to an end. What does that say about wealth. You see, that's what's missing from the professor's point of view. The hope of an intimate and eternal relationship with our creator and our provider and our redeemer. That's what the word of God reveals to us by the Holy Spirit. We not only are going to live forever by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we will be wealthy beyond our wildest imaginations in that new heavens, in that new earth. That's our hope. Job was someone who fit that case study. Remember the man who was, became very wealthy and honored 
and then he lost everything in a bad venture. Job is a classic example of that. He lost everything in one day. He lost his family, he lost his wealth, and he lost even his health itself. He lost everything. How did he respond? Job chapter 1. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother. But what he added to his statement that the professor didn't add because the professor's only under the sun, Job finished that statement by saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. He worshipped in the face of losing every earthly good. He worshipped because it was his relationship by faith with his creator, provider, and redeemer, knowing that death would not end that relationship. How do I know that? Job chapter 19, verse 25, where Job says, For I know that my redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That's faith in God's promises given to us from above the sun. As Hebrews 13, chapter, five, or chapter 13, verse 5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. Why? For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. An eternal relationship with your creator, provider, and redeemer through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's why you can treat this earth's wealth and riches as just secondary, just, you know, something you need to get through this life. Your true riches are beyond the grave. Your true riches are beyond the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we said that idolatry, you know what the idols of your heart are by saying, what do you love, what do you trust, and what do you serve? Is it money or is it God? You cannot serve two masters, Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 6, again, very familiar, but have to go to it. Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, Christ... This is what something who, somebody who only lives under the sun and does that, not had the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to enlighten them. This is what they don't understand. Jesus Christ meets those deep desires of your heart. That's how you get rid of your idols. He satisfies your need for acceptance. He satisfies your need for security. He satisfies your need for joy. He is enough. We don't hoard because we trust God to continue to provide. We don't spend our money in order to gain control or acceptance or comfort or security in this world. We invest our resources as good stewards who have been given the gift of our resources. We invest them with eternity and we tithe to our church. We give to missionaries. We give to the poor because we are investing in the kingdom of God which is eternal and we're storing up treasure in heaven where it really matters. I had five kids in Christian school when uh, at one point all five of them, we tried to get one or two of them out before the other one started, but it didn't work out that way. At one point we had all five kids in Christian school. That's a lot of tuition. 
And I used to sit, and it was the biggest check I had to write every month, quite honestly. And it was hard to write that check when we had so many other needs. But you know how I got through it? I kept asking myself the question, if I didn't write this check, and I didn't send my kids to this Christ-centered school where they're getting a biblical foundation for life, what would I spend the money on? Nicer car? Nicer clothes? Bigger house? How could I compare the two? I'm not saying that Christian education is the only way to go. I'm just saying that was the decision we made. It's the investment we made. I don't regret it for a minute. The New Testament gives the full picture. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He's raised to conquer sin and death. And we share in his resurrection to a new life that will last for eternity. And God will be with us forever and he'll never forsake us. I want to read to you. I want to close by reading to you from Paul's writing, first, his letter to, first letter to Timothy. I want you to notice in this first section that I read, he sounds just like the professor in Ecclesiastes. As a matter of fact, he repeats all the same themes. Listen to what he says. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Sounds like the professor, doesn't it? But Paul is writing from an above-the-sun perspective, and so listen to how he concludes that section, beginning in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Life with meaning, life with purpose, life eternal and abundant. Be thou my vision contains these words, riches I heed not nor man's empty praise, thou and thou only first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for all that you've given. We are truly rich under the sun. And because of what Christ has done in making himself poor for us that we might become rich, we are rich beyond our wildest imaginations above the sun for all eternity. Lord, help us to live a life that reflects that security, that acceptance, that confidence, that peace and joy. And Lord, may we be driven to talk to those who are spiritually poor around us, those who recognize their spiritual poverty, that we might show them where they might find the riches of Christ. Lord, grow your kingdom through the giving and the witness of these believers, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.